Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Daniel. It's just about in the middle of your Bible, a little to the right, in the Old Testament. Today we begin a study on this book, and I'm going to read our uh, passage for today, and we'll get going on it. It's Daniel chapter 1. We're going to study the first seven verses. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, I always like to begin with an illustration that really draws out what we're talking about today. But this is a unique message as well, because we're setting up an entire series of messages. We'll spend 12 sermons on the book of Daniel take a break and come back later in the year for a part two and hear 12 more sermons. This is one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. It's going to be a great study. And at the end of the sermon today, I'll give you the main themes of the book that we'll be picking up on throughout all these messages. But one of the ways I could introduce all this to you is to tell you about Henry Haller. Maybe you've never heard of him, probably haven't. Name doesn't ring a bell. Henry Haller worked in the White House for five different presidents, served five different first families over the span of many decades as the executive chef. Might not be that important of a role, but he fed a lot of people. And the thing is, is he walked in the hallways of lots of famous leaders heard lots of things. I mean, just think about, by the way, the president who hired him was LBJ. And he hired him because he went to a fancy hotel and ate the food there and said, who is your chef? And he hired him. <laughs> he liked his food. And then from LBJ on, he served all the way through the Reagan 80s. So you just think about uh, Nixon and stepping down, the Great Recession of the 70s with Carter, the Reagan 80s, and his uh, challenge with communism. I mean, there were so many things that he walked through the hallways and heard conversations. And somebody said to him once, you know, you probably got lots of uh, rumors you could spread, lots of dirt, lots of interesting stories and things you could tell. But his reputation was that he was not a gossip. And he said, I focus on my job and I keep my mouth shut. He's just a chef. He died at the age of 97. But I want you to imagine this. Imagine one day the president came 
into where he was working. And he said, I want you to follow me. And imagine they walked through some of those great hallways into a room filled with all the important leaders of the country. The president's there, the vice president's there, the joint chiefs of staff are there, members of Congress are there, generals are there. And they all sit down and they look to this chef. And then the chef says to them, the history of the world, what was going to happen over the next decades, what would be the history of America, how it would fall, its longevity, the powers that would overcome it, and the many other powers to come after it from the chef. Now, that's fictional. It didn't happen, but that is the character Daniel. What I just described to you is Daniel. He wasn't a chef. That part is different. But he walked in the palace of kings, many different kings. He saw the turnover of kingdoms, and he more than once was walked down the, the palace hallways into rooms with the greatest leaders of the land, and he laid out for them the history of, the, of that kingdom and the kingdoms to come that God had given to him. But he wasn't hired. He was taken captive. He lived in the land of Israel. And as we read through the passage, Babylon comes and overtakes the kingdom. And that's how we're going to bring, be, begin our study. We're going to begin our study with, uh, in the, in, and you saw in the first slide, living in Babylon. Babylon is a foreign land, a foreign country with foreign values and foreign religion. How do you live as a believer, as, as someone of faith, as a minority culture, not ethnic, but specifically values and faith in a, another majority culture that has different values and faith? The book is about that. And today, our, our breakdown of this chapter one is captive to Babylon, being taken captive by that culture, by that Babylon. And so as we go through this, the very first thing that we see in, in verse one, I'm going to read it again, is in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And so the first point I have is to take a look at the campaign of destruction. Babylon cannot overcome Israel without first coming in and conquering it. It has defenses, it has armies. And in the first little passage here, we're going to get to see a campaign to destroy Israel. A campaign of destruction. And verse 1 is very military, right? A besiegement is when you bring your armies, you bring your forces, and you come to bear against another, another army. And they come to the city of Jerusalem. They surround it. A siege is where they cut off your ability to get supplies in, and they have to try to survive without it. Now, shouldn't be a surprise. There have been warnings to Israel. This was coming. In fact, Habakkuk was a prophet, and when you read in Habakkuk 1, he said this to the nation, look 
at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And these are the words of the Lord through the prophet to the people of Israel. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. He told them, I'm raising up the Babylonians and they're going to come. So when you read Daniel chapter 1 and it, and, and it says Nebuchadnezzar showed up and laid siege to them, it shouldn't have been a surprise. What? There's an army here? They should have known. There were warning signs. But they didn't pay attention to them. And so here we are with Nebuchadnezzar laying siege to the city. Besieged by an enemy, verse 2, losing their religion. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar sacks the city. He's surrounded it, but he's got into the temple, and he has taken out of the temple the important religious items. Now, one of the first series I ever did in this church was the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, there's some, it points backwards to the Old Testament a lot. And I remember there was one sermon, we went through the entire temple. It's like, it was kind of pictures. And we walked around and said, and the temple had this, and it looked like this, and it had that. And there were a lot of things in there. And they came and they took them away, it says, and it took them back to the land of Babylon, and they put them into their house of their God. And see, that's a power move. Taking the, the relics away says, we are, our gods are more powerful than your God. Also answers the question, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? So Indiana Jones knows where to go. Took it away. Cultural joke there. Right? That's, that, but essentially that's it. They came and took those kinds of things away. Like the Ark of the Covenant. Like the, whatever, the, whatever it was that they took, those were the things that were there. And it's a power move. Even in that era of history, if one army defeated this army, then what was believed was that the God of this army was more powerful than the God of this army or gods. And they had to wrestle with that. The Babylonians their, and their God sacked and beat and defeated us and our God. But they were stripping them of their tie to who their God was by by ransacking their religious uh, temple and articles, taking away their connection to that. And then we see in verses 3 and 4, taking hostage the youth. Verse 3 says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. So there's some other pieces to this that I haven't said, like Jehoiakim is on the throne as the king, and the Babylonian army comes, they lay siege, they surround it, but something happens. A letter comes from Babylon, and it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and it says, you need to come home. Your father has died. And he now is going to become the leader. 
So he has to leave. He has to, he's the leader of this campaign and he has to leave. But when you read about it, one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar believed was that Jehoiakim on the throne is not a threat. The guy's a joke, doesn't know what he's doing. And so he leaves them on the throne. I can, I can leave for now. The armies are still there, but there's something that he does. And he takes hostages with him. Kind of like leverage, right? If you, if you give me trouble, I got the best of your people with me. Your, your next generation. Notice how he described them. I want attractive people, smart people, 4.0s. Bring them to me. And in some ways... What they do is, is they actually bring them back, we're going to get to this, and make them part of who they are, and they enhance them as a culture. Like in World War II, when many of the top scientists began to flee from Germany, Albert Einstein was one of them and ended up in America. Well, that elevated the scientific level of that community in America, right? They're going to do that. Give us your best. We're going to make you part of us. But they're also hostages, we got your people, so you better not act up. Now, you can see the campaign, right, to destroy Israel and the people. So the second part, though, is a campaign of seduction. And that, that involves the hostages. We're going to bring you back with us, and then look what they do. They want to make them... Babylonian. Okay? And this is what happens. Verse 5 says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now, the king ate the best of the land. So what he does is we're going to bring you in, and this is why I put here obligated to the Babylonians. They're not going to want, first they come as hostages, they're not going to want to leave the lifestyle. Now they're living in the palace. They got the best of the land that they're living in, the nicest buildings, the nicest community, and, and, and the best food, the best food that they're going to eat, the best wine. Because what's going to happen down the road in the story is people like Daniel will have to decide, I'm not going to be Babylonian. And if they choose not to, then what they risk is I'm giving this up. I'm giving up the lifestyle that I like. I like opulence. I like nice things. I like being in this environment. I don't want to give it up. I'm around all the smartest, the most attractive people. I don't want to be cast out of that. And there's a sense where they bring them, and one of the first ways to seduce them, they don't torture them. They bring them and they give them the best, so they say, hey, we kind of like this. We're gonna, I think we're going to embrace this. That's part of the seduction, to fall in love with what the world has to offer and forget your faith. And then in verse 5, the second part, they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So this is like getting a degree, a Babylonian degree. So not only are they going to obligate them to Babylon, they're going to educate them by Babylon. What better way to make the Babylonian than to make them spend three years with getting a Babylonian education? I remember uh, Vodi Bakum uh, is a public speaker, book writer. He was the commencement speaker at my uh, master's uh, degree ceremony. 
And there was a quote that he said, it came from one of his books, and it was talking about education, it was talking about this very thing. And he said this, he said, if you, parents, if you send your children to a Roman school where they educate them in the Roman ways, in the Roman culture, in the Roman values, don't be surprised when they come back to your home a Roman. And there's something about the educational process that if you can get them when they're young, and we'll talk about their ages next week in their teens, you can get them when they're young enough that they, you can shape that. You can shape it in them. And they become, you can indoctrinate. You can make them what you want to make them. And the Babylonians believe that. They're going to strip their identity that they had that was Jewish and try to make them become like them and just amalgamate them into their culture. And there's no better uh, description of success in that than in verse 6 where it says this, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And look what happens. In verse 7 says, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. And that's why in the, the, the last point here in the campaign of seduction is they're just going to remake them into Babylonian. Because what you may not recognize in that is the names they have coming in, Daniel, they're, they're tied to their Jewish faith. The new names that they give them, their new identity ties them into Babylonian faith. And I just wrote this down here just so you know what it is. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means Jehovah is my helper. But Nebuchadnezzar changing their names. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. That name means the keeper of the treasure of Baal. Baal was a pagan god, one of the gods of Babylon, a heathen god. Hananiah was renamed Shadrach, which means com command of the moon god. Mishael was to be Meshach, which meant the goddess Shak. And Azariah, changed to Abednego, means the fire god. I mean, what a cunning strategy. Just think about that. Everywhere you go, instead of somebody calling your name out, God is my judge, now Daniel, keeper of the treasure of Baal. Every time someone says their name, the identity is connected to, to the religion of Babylon. That is a remaking of them every day, over and over again, every time they hear it. And the food, the food also tied into faith. You see, first of all, the Jews had a specific diet. There were some things they were not allowed to eat. There's the word kosher, which means if it's not kosher, you can't eat it. It didn't fit into the dietary laws of the nation and faith of the Israelites. And so coming into Babylon, it says, this is what you're going to eat. There's a way in which they're stripping them again of that. You're not obeying and walking in the way you should. You're going to walk this way. Eat this food. 
In fact, not just against maybe their um, dietary laws, but also, you know, you know what the butcher shop was like in Babylon? They'd bring an animal and they would slaughter it and all, as part of a sacrifice to their pagan gods. This meat is given to you and dedicated to you. And now we cook it and when we eat it, it honors our pagan god. And so part of the practice was we give honor to our pagan god by eating the meat in that. And so all of these things were a challenge to these young men of faith to come in. But they're also calculated. These measures that they're, they're seducing them, coming at them in different ways. They're going to like it here. They're going to love it here. We'll slowly strip away their connection to who they were in the past so we can make them who we want them to be. A campaign of seduction. Now, I'm going to stop there. Two points from seven verses. But the reason I'm stopping is because I want to have enough time to give you the major themes of the book. And every time I kick off a book, I do this. I give you, these are the main things we're going to look at through the book, and we come back to them over and over again. In fact, today I've already mentioned some of them. But they really set the table for our study. And so here they are. These are the major themes of the book. And the first one that you're going to see is Daniel is faith in a hostile world. When Christianity becomes the minority in a culture. Now, in Daniel's case, it's, it's, it's extreme. It's extreme because they're actually taken captive and they're brought into a land and it's like you got to, it'd be like there are countries today, if we went over there, we would have to abide by some of the, some of the laws that they have if you wanted to stay and be there. And some of the laws we would say, I'm not sure I agree with that, but how do you walk in an environment that's hostile to your values, to your beliefs, to your faith? And I think it's one of the best things that we're going to get out of the book of Daniel because he has to do it. Next week, we're going to see it. We're going to see him be faced with the challenge. Are you going to eat the food? Are you going to do it or not? And it's interesting to see what things they allowed to happen, like, you could change my name. You can change my name, but, you, but you're not going to change this in here. And you see, this is what I'm going to point to Christ in the New Testament uh, on my next slide. This, in John chapter 17, he is, this is the last night he's with his disciples. And there's this high priestly prayer that he gives to the disciples. And here's a couple verses of that. In verse 11, he says, And I, that's Jesus, am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. He's praying to his father. He's saying, he, he's actually physically there, but he knows they're about to come and take me away, and I'm going to be killed on the cross. He's saying, I'm no longer in the world, but he's leaving the disciples behind, and he's saying, they are in the world. I'm coming to you. And then you read down. That's a great chapter. I'd read the whole thing. But just for our illustration, verse 14, he says, And I have given them your word. That's the disciples. I've given the disciples a word. And the, the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And this is where you've probably heard this phrase that comes out in Christianity that says, Be in the world, but not of the world. Live in the world, but don't, 
Be like it. Don't become amalgamated into the world that God sends you to try to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to. And I'm going to show you an illustration because yesterday I, I spent my entire day out in the world. Not just, it wasn't church community per se. There were some people that were there, but it was out in the world. My son, Ethan, was in a competition where they were lifting and it came to the very end. It was really close. First or second place, can you get this lift? And I want to show you what happened. I'm going to let you, it's like a 17-minute clip. You got that ready? <laughs> I chose that clip because it had you in there, Missy. <laughs> that was 300 pounds, which, by the way, is a lot of weight to lift above your head. And then later, he did another lift, 355 pounds, a different lift. And he was partnered up with Jamie right there. Wave your hand there. They were they was teammates. It, was, it had to be a guy and a girl, and then they, they, they aggregated everything together. But here's what I want to say about that. That's not, that, that's not a church building. That's, I'm out in the world, right? And I want to tell you that I have a lot of friends I walked around that whole day talking to people, and I, and I, I genuinely like the friendships. I like them. I love talking to them and see where they're at in their life. I ask questions. Hey, I remember, I remember you were, what, there's one guy I said, I remember you were dating this girl. What happened? And then my wife's like, they broke up. Why'd you ask that? I was like, I didn't know. But we, we know people, right? And then I could even use an example of my son, Josiah, who plays in a band. And a few weeks ago, we went to here. They were playing at a restaurant. And that was interesting because we went at the same time with Andrew and Denise from this church. And I didn't tell Andrew and Denise this, but I was really curious. As we sat there, I was wondering how many people would come up and talk with Andrew and Denise and how many people would come up and talk with us. Because to me, it's like, are you, are you building relationships in the world that God has placed you? Yes or no? Now, in that setting, we know a lot of people because we know they're Josiah's friends in the band. But when I go over to Andrew and Denise's building, I don't know as many people in that building. But sure, everybody in the building talks to Andrew and Denise. And they're part of that community. And this is what God calls us to. And in this verse, Jesus is saying, be in the world, but remember, you're not of the world. We are inclined towards a heavenly kingdom a world that is not of this. And the challenge through Daniel is going to be, I really like the world that, that you put me in. And you're going to see that of those 70 in this one, and that's not the only group that they brought out of Israel to Babylon, but in this particular one, not all of them walk the same way as Daniel. Some of them become Babylonians. Some of them become the world that they're in. And they begin to reflect the values that are Babylonian. But one of my greatest passions, and I have always been like this, and God brought me here, is be in the world. Serve the island of Guam. Build relationships in Guam. But know that there's values out there that are going to be different than what God calls me to. And when I walked around that competition yesterday, I came up to people. I know this person, but their, their morals are different than mine. What they believe about marriage is different than what I believe. The, some of the people I came across and I talk with, they, they practice a same-sex lifestyle. But I genuinely say, that's my friend. I like you. 
and I do want you to do well, but I have this motivation underneath me that I really want to, if God gives me the chance and the opportunity arises, to tell them about my faith in Jesus Christ, to point them to this other kingdom that's up there, that in order to be a part of, you've got to know Christ. And so we go and we live in the world, but don't become like it. And I think it's one of the greatest aspects of this study because we get an example of it in Daniel. He's going to be met with a lot of challenges. And you know what? They're going to hate Daniel. They're going to hate him. They're going to bear false witness. They're going to plot against him. And just like Jesus said, they hate my disciples. And it's probably a moment where sometimes you talk about a value that this world that we live in hates. I'm going to cancel you for saying that. And that's something that we have to navigate. And I'm going to tell you that when we go through this book, we're going to talk about cancel culture because they try to cancel Daniel. So it has a lot of relevance to us today. Faith in a hostile world. But not only that, beware of the warning signs. You see, like I said earlier in the message, they shouldn't have been surprised. What? The Babylonians are here to conquer us? You should have seen it coming. And one of the great tragedies of the Old Testament is the failure of their people God's people to, to see the constant warning signs, the constant warning signs. And I just wrote a few of them down. First of all, there's all the different prophets who bring God's word, Habakkuk, Micah, Jeremiah, that, or, that God gave to speak his word to people. The idol worship, they had God's word. It says, don't do that. They perpetually and continually did that. Do you know that after the third king, the kingdom splits in two and there's two kingdoms? Well, this kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar conquers is the last one because the first one has already been conquered by the Assyrians. And do you know why they were conquered? For worshiping idols. Because they kept following after the world. And there's a way in which you could look at Jehoiakim and, and he's the leader and say, didn't you learn from the other kingdom? And there's... There's even more to the story. Jehoiakim, when Nebuchadnezzar goes back because his father dies, Jehoiakim hears about the Egyptians in the area and says, I'm going to go get the Egyptians. They're going to come and they're going to help me overthrow the Babylonians. That's a good plan, right? And Jeremiah hears about it. Well, Jeremiah is already in prison because Jeremiah already has come to him and said, stop worshiping the idols. And, and Jehoiakim got tired of Jeremiah's mouth and said, put him in prison. And so when Jeremiah is sitting in prison, he hears about this plan and he brings uh, uh, somebody to write down for him, a scribe. It says, write this down and take it to the king. And he writes it down and, and, and the guy goes to, to the king and says, this is from Jeremiah and he reads it. And essentially what it says is, don't do it. Because the Babylonians have been raised up as discipline for you. And if you go try to get the Egyptians and try to overthrow them, what you are really doing is saying, I don't want God's discipline. It's like a father sending his son to the room and say, sit on your bed for two hours. You're in a timeout because of, because of something wrong that you did. And the hour passes and you go back and the window's open. And he snuck out and he's down the street playing with his friends. Well, he, that's not a demonstration that he respects your discipline, is it? And that's similar here to what, Je what Jehoiakim, in fact, it's even more amazing. Do you know what Jehoiakim does? He takes the note that comes from Jeremiah 
and he rips it up and destroys it. And honestly, that very thing exists today. God's word is brought to people and they take it and say, I don't want it. And we're going to rip it up. And we're not going to listen to his word. But his word is a warning because God deals with sin. And you need to think in terms of like farming and investment. If I, if I have a farm and I, and I plant things and I really invest in it and I, and I nurture it and I, and I put the kinds of things that will help it grow, that's what will happen, barring some tragedy like a drought. But when it comes to civilizations, if the seeds that you plant are sexual immorality and things that God hates, What's going to grow up in that civilization is something that will be hostile towards God. And the trajectory is that God deals with these things in his time. He's a patient God, but he does. And that should say something to us as a people of faith that lives in a culture that even now sees changes and shifts. where We go, that's really different. It didn't used to be like that. If you go back a hundred years, if this stage was a timeline... And here we are living now. And we go back in time a hundred years. Do you know I as a Christian, and I said this is what I believe about marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And I believe in monogamy. Which means you're faithful to that woman. And you took somebody who didn't go to church, who wasn't a believer, and they said define marriage. You know what they'd say? The vast majority would give the same definition. There is, and what I'm saying is that the culture and its values aligned a lot. Still, the Judeo-Christian ethic of the Bible permeated culture. And we fast forward to here, and the definitions are different. The definitions are different about gender. The def there's a lot of different definitions that are out there. And it will increasingly get more hostile to our faith and to speak what those values are. And I still say, if it happens, we, we might have to be like a Daniel. Live in the culture, but don't be like it. Don't lose the faith here. Love the people God sends you to. Build relationships. But don't lose your faith. And know, because God uses Daniel. He uses him to save people. He uses him to change kings and to change kingdoms. And even Esther is another story that, that parallels this. She's in the land of Babylon, and God uses her. And so there's, there's something about the child of God who stays strong in their heart and waits for the right moments that God uses them. These are the major themes. Faith in a hostile world, beware of the warning signs. I have this great quote from this lady, Ariel Gonzalez Bovat. I hardly even know her. My wife knows her. She shared it with me. It says, when we conflate the gospel with social reform and imply the main implication of a lived-out gospel life is reforming society for its flourishing, we will fail to realize a society is unable to be reformed as long as the sin that Christ died for is being celebrated, affirmed, and encouraged. And the danger there in that quote is a lot of churches are jumping on the bandwagon of serve, serve, help the communities you're in to flourish. But a part of that is, as long as this, the, the sin that, that God deals with 
not only is existent, but is perpetuated to, to where it's celebrated, then we can fail as the church because you still have to address change. You need to conform to what God's Word says. Now, the last, there's two, two more themes. I'm going to have time for them. The next one is times of the Gentiles. I'll be kind of brief with this, but I have a verse to demonstrate this. It comes out of the New Testament, Luke, and Jesus is talking about when he's going to come back. And he says this, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now that is a very interesting name, times of the Gentiles. What does it mean? First of all, if you don't know anything about the Bible, in the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is really about God's people, the Jews, and the nation of Israel, how they come from Abraham, the father, and he, into a nation. They're Jews. And in the Bible, everybody not a Jew is called a Gentile. That's what it means. So right here he's saying the times of the Gentiles. Well, the Bible gives the plan for God's people. And in Daniel, he actually does that. He's like, there's a point where he says, are you done with us as a people? He says, no, let me give you the plan. And he gives them this fantastic timeline when we get to that. I'll just show you how history has unfolded through the things that Daniel says. But right now, we're not in God's plan for the Jews. Right now, we're in an era of time where he's working through the church. And in the book of Daniel, think about it. It's a Jew living in Gentile land with Gentile leaders. And the big prophecies that come out are all about how history unfolds for the Gentile nations. Here's the great kingdom that will come. It will fall. The next great kingdom that will come. He gives it to them. Babylon, you're great. You're not going to last forever. Who's the next one? And it's all about the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles. And what the Bible says is there is a time where that will end, where the times of the Gentiles ends, and the next and final kingdom that comes will be led by Jesus Christ. And he will finish his plan. He goes back and he finishes his plan for his people. And in the, at the end, he, he brings everyone together. But I, I lay that out there because it's a big part of the book. It talks about all the kingdoms to come. Now, the last one, and I've saved this for the last, it is the main point of the book. I saved the best for the last. And that is the universal sovereignty of God. Now, in the book, you see Daniel really draw this out. Some of the words he uses are in talking about the Father is great God. He is the God of gods. He is the King of heaven. And, he, and, and one of the things that Daniel does is he answers this question. Is, is there still a God in heaven? Because think of them as a people, like they're defeated, they're broken down, they've been taken captive, their temple is destroyed, our holy relics now sit in a pagan uh, shrine. Are you still there? Have you forgotten about us? And through the book, Daniel answers the question, there is a God in heaven, and he's sovereign over everything. And just like the verse I said, he's going to raise up the Babylonians, and he's using them perhaps to defeat you now. It's a form of discipline. 
but he's in control. Look, I have a verse for this one too. This comes out of the book of Daniel later in chapter 2. Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And no one would know that better than Daniel, who was an eyewitness to God raising up kings and deposing them multiple times. To see God take the wisdom of men and make them insane like animals. And then to raise them back up and make them wise again. He does that. He does that to characters in the story. And it shows you the sovereignty of God in all things. He changes times. He changes seasons. And that is huge for us. Because if you're like me, human, and a Christian sitting in this room... I would venture to say there have been times where you, you had that thought. You look at what's going on in the world, sometimes you go, holy cow, is there a God in heaven? How, how, how are we going to make this right? And Daniel answers that question. And you kind of blend these two things together. What's it like to have faith in a hostile world and to hold on to a truth that God is in control? And that's what we're going to draw out of Daniel. And God can do anything. You know, I, I started off talking about Harry Holler, the, the executive chef in the White House, but have you ever heard the name Jonathan Edwards? Considered one of the five greatest theologians to ever live in America during a time of great revival? There were times where God, even in America and even in Europe, where he brought about great revivals. He uses men like that. He uses a man like Billy Graham, who in his lifetime brought many people into the church. And they can affect change. But be aware of the culture we live in and watch for that. Do you know that the King Jehoiakim, do you know who his father was? Jehoiakim was one of the worst kings ever for Israel. Evil. But his dad was King Josiah. That's, that's the king I named my son Josiah after. And Josiah's story was this. It was, it was bad. There was idols. They'd fallen away. That's what he inherited. And they're doing renovations at the temple. And he, somebody finds scripture. Like, what are these, this old, these old writings? They pull them out. They start reading the Bible, basically. And Josiah says, holy cow, we, we're doing it wrong. And Josiah, King Josiah, starts the, the great revival of his era. And he tears down all the idols and he points the people of the nation back to God. But it didn't last long, did it? Because when he died and his son Jehoiakim took the throne, he led him right back into idolatry and sin and eventually judgment. And so there's a way in which I say revivals can happen. But God calls us as a people to go be in the world Build relationships, but don't become like the world and help draw people to the one truth that leads to the one true king. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the study we're going to have in it, for the major themes, how applicable they are to us in today's world. And I just pray, God, that as we go through it, that you would challenge our hearts, that you open our eyes. There are some hard things to understand when it comes to prophecy sometimes. But open our eyes, Lord. Help us to grab the truths 
to be challenged. Israel's in trouble, Lord, because they wouldn't repent. They took the word of God, the king did, and ripped it up. They don't want to repent. And this is true of us. There are things in our life, Lord, that maybe we do need to repent of, that we need to change. Maybe there are those of us in here who live too much in a church bubble. We need to go out and be in Babylon. We need to live in Babylon more. Build relationships and love the people that you send us to, but not become and adapt the values that are not in line with your word. We lift all these things up to you. Ask your blessing on this study. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and we'll finish worshiping together.